This morning, Scripture's reading is from Psalm 22. Psalm chapter 22. As I read, please follow along in your Bible or on the screens. Hear from God's Word. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breasts. And on you I cast my, I was, was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me, like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me, they have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, you my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him, shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. Then they shall, pro- they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. This is God's word. At this time, children ages three through kindergarten are dismissed to the little landing. Good morning, faith family at the landing. What a glorious time of worship. Let's turn to the Lord once again as we seek his help for the preaching of the word. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, I ask you to come in power and speak as you already have, as we've sung, as we've prayed, as we've recited glorious truth together. Would you now instruct us by Psalm 22, by the Holy Spirit who comes not only to have written the scriptures, but to now illumine them and open our hearts to receive them as your holy word. Bless us now, Lord, 
with all that we lack to obey your will and to be filled up to all the fullness of God. Bless us with that which we need of you. In Jesus' glorious name I pray. Amen. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It's like precious oil running down upon the head and upon the beard, even the beard of Aaron to his collar and down to the hem of his robe. It's like the dew from Mount Hermon falling down upon Zion. There, the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. If you were to draw in your mind a scene, an outdoor scene, with land and water and maybe mountains and a valley and creatures and people and maybe buildings, what would the church look like to you? If you were to draw in your mind an image, even close your eyes if it's helpful, imagine, what does the church look like? What if the Lord said, I created land and, and water and light and the heavens and all that's in them and the earth and that's all that's in it, but now I wish to recreate my church as a new people. And, and you were to sit right beside the Lord and he would say to you, create with me, paint with me, would you? Any thought that comes to your mind when you're sitting right next to me, poof, it happens. So be careful what you think. Because it'll be. Think with me and create the church. We've been looking at Psalm 22 for now two of three weeks. Last week we saw how the saved exalt in worship before God. Today we'll see how the saved are revolutionized to be bound together with all the rest who are saved. God's covenant love for each of us binds us together with each other in covenant unity. That's the main point of my message. God's covenant love for each of us binds us together in covenant unity. You can see that too in Psalm 22, and then the Lord willing next week, in Psalm 22, we will see how being saved sends us to the lost within our own homes, within our own communities, among our neighbors, and to the nations and the ends of the earth. God's covenant love for each of us binds us together with each other in covenant unity. As soon as you're born again, to a living hope through faith in Jesus Christ, you're born into an eternal family. You'll see that as we look through three observations in David's writing of Psalm 22. You remember David is writing here early on in his life, probably at a time when he was being opposed and chased by Saul. Likely it was after the time he defeated Goliath, but he was battling enemies like the Philistines and the Amalekites and many others. He writes so grievously, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's his experience, for God has never actually forsaken David. In fact, if you're in Christ, God never forsakes you. Praise his name. If your children are in Christ, he never forsakes them. God never forsakes his church. How do we know this? How can we declare this? How can we say that David's 
verse 1 cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is actually not his experience. How do we know that? We know it in two ways. One, the very next psalm says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Good for you, David. We also know it more profoundly because when David under the Spirit is writing Scripture, Psalm 22, he does not fully understand, how could he, but eight centuries later, a descendant of his, the son of David, Jesus Christ the righteous, would say, my ancestor David wrote this psalm for his life experience, but he did not know he was writing that psalm for me. As I hung upon the cross, Jesus says, I'm the one who says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because my God forsook me. Because divine Father forsook and deserted the divine Son in reality, no one in the divine Son has ever or shall ever be forsaken. David is living a life much like us where it often feels like we've been forsaken of God. Maybe you feel that way in church this morning. Maybe you're not here because you feel so out of sorts and distant from God you can't imagine being among God's people. It feels so awkward. Know this, that those in Christ, those who call on the name of the Lord, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved and they are never deserted, never forsaken, never does God withdraw, never does God divorce His beloved bride. Because he did desert and forsake his son. When that stunning realization strikes you that I am preserved and loved and cherished by God with an unbreakable love, that he's sent his spirit to dwell within me and I am secure in him, that there's nothing I can do to make him love me more and nothing I can do to make him love me less, That revolutionizes you, and it not only revolutionizes your identity in Christ before Him, it revolutionizes all your relationships. Now you are bound together with every other person who's ever been revolutionized by the salvation of Christ. So when David, and ultimately Christ, through the passage in Psalm 22, 12 through 18, says, bulls encompass me. And then he later says, dogs encompass me. Who are the bulls and who are the dogs? These are surely Israelites, among others. They're Philistines, they're Amalekites. But they're also Saul, and they're also those who sided with Saul, who were pursuing and seeking to kill David. And he wrote profoundly and prophetically about his life experience, but he also instructed us, that this psalm was going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ as Jesus hung on the cross. When Jesus hangs on the cross, who are the bulls and the dogs? The bulls and the dogs are the Israelites who decided that they can run God's world better than His Word says, and they will take control, and they will do it their way, and they will put to death this upstart troublemaker who blasphemes and claims to be the Son of God. Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees, anyone crying out, crucify him, 
the Romans who did the will of the Jews who called for his crucifixion, and and ultimately all of us who bear the sin that Jesus is dying for are the bulls and the dogs that encompass Christ as he utters this psalm as his very own. That's in contrast to what happens in verses 21 and 22. I want to make my first observation about the fact that we're combined together as a covenant people in unity once we have made covenant Salvation in, by faith in Christ. Look at verses 21 and 22. I'll read them for you again. Save me from the mouth of the lion. Picture Jesus saying this. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And, and in, right in that statement, he's not talking about being excused off the cross. Okay, Jesus, you did enough. Jump down from the cross. You're fine. No, no. He dies fully and is buried. That rescue, Psalm 22, verse 21, refers to is the resurrection. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. Who's that? Who's my brothers? Well, it isn't just the Israelite people. We know the Israelite people are opposed to Jesus, many of them, at the time of his crucifixion. Their words reveal that so. These are those who have been united, adopted, grafted into the family of God from all ethnicities and backgrounds. These are those who say, Christ is our brother, and we together are sons of the Father. These are those in the family of God, the opposite of the dogs. Do you see the word congregation later in verse 22, in the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. That's not all Israel according to the ethnicity. That's the people of God gathered because they all love God and God loves them. It's the Hebrew word kahal. It means the gathered or assembled covenant people. We're that right now because the word kahal in Hebrew is translated into ekklesia in Greek, and Jesus calls his gathered people the ekklesia, which is identical to this kahal. It's the gathered covenant people. You can see this in Psalm 40, verse 10. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness, speaking to the Lord, David says, from the great congregation. The congregation are those who have received the covenant love and faithfulness of God. The covenant promises are applied to believers of every background, of every ethnicity, men, women, and children who are engaged and they're coming into the great congregation and they lift their voices. They're the ones not afraid to lift their voice. They're not the spectators. They're not the observers. They're not the sideline sitters, the halfway committers. No, no, no. These are those who've stood up and said, I am not ashamed of Jesus because Jesus was not ashamed of me. These are the assembly of those believers who are willing to let all the other believers around them know, I'm one of you. I'm not a phony. You're not a phony either. We're real. And and strength surges when you're around people who are not afraid to say, I'm not a phony. This is the assembled, gathered, named, chosen, believing people of God gathering around His presence. These are the people that Christ has 
shown the Father to, and then now he's going to say through this church and the local expressions of the local assembly, I am going to reveal myself to the world through these people. This is what he prays in John 17, just before he dies on the cross. He says to the Father, I have manifested your name to the people whom you have given me out of the world. That's his brothers, the, the ecclesia, the kahal, the gathered assembly. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. The writer of Hebrews confirms the same exact reading of Psalm 22 and our reading of John 17. Listen to the way the writer of Hebrews expresses what Jesus did in his ministry. Chapter 2, verse 10. For it was fitting that he, the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, Christ, perfect through suffering. For he, Christ, who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified all have one source, the Father. That is why he, Christ, is not ashamed to call them brothers. Saying, and then he quotes Psalm 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Jesus comes among us by his Holy Spirit and he wells up within us and under the leadership of servants who point us to God-saturated, biblically sound truth, we, empowered by the Spirit, sing together and our singing together is a vertical praise to him. It's also a tremendous strength to each other. I hope you feel a surging in your spirit right now that you love to be a part of a church that is fearless and bold to say, I'm not ashamed of Jesus because he wasn't ashamed of me. That's probably the deepest, sweetest line to remember out of this study of who we are as a church. This is how you witness. This is how you lead. This is how you worship. This is how you go through ministries. This is how you strengthen one another. This is how you engage in life. I'm not ashamed of Jesus because Jesus was not ashamed of me. Your physical family is the metaphor for your eternal family. It's not the other way around. Your physical family, which lasts only for this age because there's no marriage, in heaven. There's no physical families in heaven. We're all physical. Christ is physical. But we're all the bride of Christ, married to our heavenly husband, the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is, as it were, we are brothers with him in the way Romans 8 speaks of our relationship to Christ. Your physical family is the brief, vapor-like metaphor Revealing what it's like to be in the family of God, called a brother by Christ, unashamed of him, for he is unashamed of us, and forever and forever and forever enjoying the fact that we're included, we're loved, we're adopted, we're prized, we're valued, we're in covenant sweet fellowship with the Lord of glory, our brother, Jesus Christ the righteous. This is the foundation of every healthy church's understanding of covenant membership. Covenant membership is not taught explicitly as a command in the Bible. It's just assumed in hundreds of places. It's meant to be a reflection of this brotherhood. We are a local expression where we can live out our family relationships. 
in trust with one another because we are the ones in covenant membership who've stood up and said, I'm not ashamed to say I love Jesus because Jesus is not ashamed to call me his brother. That's what membership is. Oh, the tectonic strength that bursts forth when a company of men, women, and children together at the same place declare that they are not ashamed of Christ because he's not ashamed of them. Put away this rampant, private, individualized view of Christianity. It's defective. It's a pathway to destruction. Don't let welling up inside you or or don't let yourself tolerate in, in shoddy thinking among others this idea that I can be a believer all by myself. I don't want people to know who I am or what I'm really like. I've always been hurt when I've done that is the excuse. The reality is if we are Christ and unashamed of Him, we will boldly say it among others and there will be strength that happens horizontally between you and me as we declare our unashamed love for Christ, He being unashamed of us. Next week, in conclusion of this series of messages, we'll say out loud together what's written on your insert today. We had you receive it today so that you can look at it in hand this week. Considering it, this is what members of the church already love and cherish. You'll be reminded of that if you're a member. And we'll say it out loud as our love our cherish, our promise, our covenant next week. If you're not a member, take this little half sheet, read it over and say, oh, how I want that to be true of me. Why is that not true of me the way it's true of members? And we will warmly welcome you to walk through the path of membership here. Jesus not only calls us family, and we're not only united as family once we're united to him by faith, We also learn as family how to fear him together. The fear of the Lord begins in your heart. Yes, yes it does. But it doesn't come to full completion until you're with the body of Christ. Have you ever thought of that? One of the confusions that's rampant in America today is this idea that you can have some kind of a personal relationship with Christ and yet not with his organized local church. The bad news is, You have to put quotes around the Christ that they're having a relationship with because it's not the same one of the Bible. When we're united with Christ, we're always united with his body, and there will always be welling up within us. And every believer in this room who hears me says, yes, I want to be in the body. I want to engage in the body. I'm tired of being the one foot out, one foot in kind of person. I want to engage because that's the spirit of Christ in me. When Christ draws us to himself and unites us to each other, then we begin to learn the fear of the Lord. Just a few passages to show you this. I I, I have many in my manuscript. I'm going to skip over some. You can get the manuscript if you want to look at others. I began by reflecting on verse 23. You who fear the Lord, covenant Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, that's believing offspring, Glorify him and stand in awe of him. It's another parallel to fearing the Lord. All you offspring of Israel, that's believing Israel. 
You who fear the Lord, praise him. All the offspring of Jacob, all the offspring of Israel, fear the Lord collectively. How does that work? Well, you can see it in places like Proverbs 14. Listen. In the fear of the Lord, one, just you or an individual, has strong confidence and his children will have a refuge. So your fear of the Lord is a blessing to your family. But it goes on. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. In a multitude of people is the glory of a king, but without, a, but without people a prince is ruined. Those proverbs mean that the fear of the Lord begins in your heart as you come to him, but it grows and it becomes edgy and concrete and toothy when you're with the body of Christ. This is why so many people want to resist being in the body of Christ because they know we have, as the kahal, the ecclesia, a gathered authority that no one of us has individually and no group of us has separately. We have an authority as the Spirit of the Lord gathers together, and this is what the New Testament calls church discipline. It's where the fear of the Lord grows teeth, happily, as a blessing. We want this. Oh, how we love this. It's in the Bible, so we love it, but oh, how I've experienced the beauty and the wonder and the glory of this. Jesus teaches, doesn't he, in Matthew 10, that we're not to fear the one who can destroy the body and, and throw it into the grave. We're to fear God who can destroy both body and soul and cast them into hell. How do we show our fear of God and not our fear of man or the devil? He says, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. This acknowledging Jesus before men is the same thing we've seen already. I'm not ashamed of Jesus because he's not ashamed of me. That's how the fear of the Lord expresses itself. We open up and say something. We stand forth and say, count me in. I love Jesus and I love you who love him as well. When Paul instructs the church at Corinth in church discipline, listen to how powerful a work happens in the gathered assembly. 1 Corinthians 5, when you are assembled, that is assembled in the body, the ecclesia, the kahal, that's the word he's using, in the name of the Lord Jesus, this is not when you're out to dinner, this is not when you're at somebody's house, this is not when you're walking along the road, this is not when you're at a game, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that, why? His spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. If you're in a church that refuses to practice church discipline, it's all a religious game. If you're in a church where we love Christ because he has genuinely worked a salvation work in our lives, we will say we'll do anything to keep your soul to the very end. Including through tears and humility and open, transparent conversation, you can't continue in a path of sin and still think God's grace has been effective in your life. Repent, brother or sister. I've been in situations where I've said those words and the response across the table 
or, or from the person that I have said them to has looked at me and said, maybe I'll repent someday, but not today. That's the sin of presumption. If you don't want to today, you probably won't want to someday. But oh, how I have loved being across the table and across the conversation from those who have said, I want to repent. It's so hard. I need God's help. And he rushes in. And God gives the gift of repentance. This church and every healthy church ought to be the most dangerous place for your sin and the most safe place for your soul. God's covenant love makes us learn the fear of the Lord. Finally, Jesus says, look at verses 25 through 26. First, he showed us who we are. We are his brothers, and we boldly say, I'm not ashamed of Christ because he's not ashamed of me. And then we see how the fear of the Lord is instructed and taught us in deep and glorious and powerful ways both by Psalm 22 and several other passages. And now look thirdly at this beautiful picture of how our sharing what we have been given by the Spirit to say, whatever that might be or whatever that might look like as we do it, satisfies like a banquet all those around us. I get that from Psalm 22, verses 25 and 26. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. That's Kahal. It's the same gathering again. My vows, that is my promises, my confession, my thanksgiving. That's what the vows are. The things that I say back to God that show that I love Him. Where I commit myself with my words. My vows I will perform before those who fear Him. That's in front of everybody who has done the same. They've said their vows too. The afflicted, that is the hurting, the wounded, the beat up people who come into church looking for a safe place for healing, they shall eat of those words and be satisfied. When you stand up and talk about Jesus, even in the smallest way, everybody has a banquet around you. I pray that we would be so filled up with all the gifts of the Spirit that you would be simply sharing freely and openly the things God is doing in your life through Christ and people just want to elbow into the circle and listen so that they can feast on what you're saying. What if it would be that we were not at all worried about replacing or repeating or copying any certain spiritual gifts? Don't you find it unseemly that it seems like in the American church we're so celebrity-driven that we're only looking to kind of copycat a few very popular and effective gifts? Doesn't that seem sort of sour to you? It stinks to me. What if, in fact, we all realized what spiritual gifts are for in the first place? They all exist for love, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. They exist, all of them, for love. In other words, you don't find out what spiritual gift the Holy Spirit has given you by taking a survey or a personality test. You just start loving people the best way you can. You just start loving people. How am I going to love these people? How am I going to love this person? How am I going to love the other end of this phone call? How am I going to love the person who's going through that diagnosis? How am I going to love the person who's had that horrible tragedy happen to their family? 
How am I going to love the person who's facing this decision, who's feeling betrayed, dismissed, or left out? However you love is the gift of the Spirit the Lord has given you. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, to each of the kahal, the gathered, the covenant people, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. I just can't help but think we are really, really, really thin on everybody using their manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. I'd love to imagine what it would look like to craft and paint a vision of the local church where love was so focused, so passionately the aim of everyone in their life that they didn't really even care how to have their gift identified or named. That wasn't even important, and they certainly didn't want to use their gift once they named it for some kind of a pride thing or usurping of God's design for men and women or some kind of a, of a new dot-com money-making scheme or some other silliness. But they just said, no, I've got some ability from the Holy Spirit that I want to use for the sake of love. I want to speak my vows, as it were, so that everyone around me feasts, even the afflicted, and are satisfied. So often a person who's caught up in sort of their own orbit says, boy, I haven't been called, I haven't been reached out to, nobody's asked me to do anything at the church, I just feel like I'm on the periphery, and it's really all their fault. What, what this teaches is you're uniquely gifted, you're uniquely blessed, you're uniquely filled by the Spirit for giftings of love that you may or may not even have discovered yet. Or maybe you've been using them and you haven't even paused to say, Lord, this is a spiritual gift that you're using in my life right now. And, and you move in, you, you get bold, you say, I am going to declare that I'm not ashamed of Christ, for He was not ashamed of me. That's what healthy churches look like. Healthy churches are constantly brimming with and bristling with and growing with life. That's why I began with Psalm 133. The church has to be the place where the Lord commands the blessing of life forevermore. I see signs of it here. I see signs of it in my life. Kath and I see signs of it in our family we see signs of it among you. You might see signs of it too, but couldn't there be so much more of you and I using all the gifts of loving one another that he has given to us in full New Testament biblical order? The church pictures, rather the culture pictures the church as a tiny little outhouse. They really do. They look upon us pretty negatively. We're, we're like a small, old building with a little stairway climbing up into it, two double doors, arched windows, maybe a light on inside, kind of dusty, kind of dry, and if you stay there too long, it gets kind of scary. So why would I want to go there? There's no appeal says the world, about the church. But if you and I walk into the church, we walk into each other's presence, we immediately start to feel grass under our feet and we hear water 
flowing and we hear birds flying and we hear animals and we see homes and cozy cabins and we look off into the distance and we see an afternoon sunset with every color imaginable and the clouds giving a hue of warmth and glow and we see mountains and snow caps that are melting in the sun and they form a river and the river comes to a waterfall and it crashes over and below that is a mist and everything is lush and luxuriant and verdant under that mist and then that flows into a lake, and around the lake are smoke wisping out of their chimney cozy cabins. And everybody living in and out of those cabins is serving and loving and caring for each other. And there are animals and everyone seems to be dwelling together in peace and in harmony and beauty. And all of that for miles and miles and miles is right in the front door of the church. A tiny little building. Nothing more than an outhouse to the world. What does the church look like? How do we let it out? How do we enjoy it? How does it happen that every one of you has a right to ask, can I experience the love of God in this church for real, for me? Can my child, my spouse, my parents... My grandparents, can my friends be safe if I brought them here? Many in the world are aching and yearning for such a vision of the church. They're they're almost as if God has instructed them, but they've repressed it so far they dare not dream of it. An actual kingdom, an actual existence of beauty and of love and of color and, and of recreation where the land and the water and the light and all that's teeming within the land and water created by God, recreated in the church, is beautiful. It's a place where the oil of anointing is present like the Holy Spirit down upon Aaron's beard and to the hem of his robe saying, You're forgiven! You're forgiven! There's more grace in God than there is sin in you. Come, be forgiven. And and the dew of Mount Hermon comes down upon Mount Zion to say the Spirit is here to grow you and water you and replenish and renew you. No arid, parched, drought land in the church because the Spirit is present among us. Would you pray with me? I'm asking, Father, for you to achieve through Christ this vision of the church that Jesus gives us hints of in Psalm 22 and then commands throughout the rest of the New Testament. I want us to love you as our brother and say we boldly stand for you, Lord Jesus, unashamed for you are unashamed of us. And that we're willing to be loved so earnestly and so powerfully and so genuinely that someone will come to us and say, there's something in your life that's out of step, it seems, with your witness, and I'd like to help. Lord, we want to be the place of the Spirit's outpouring. The people under whom you command and over whom you command the blessing of life forevermore. 
I thank you for the landing. I thank you for the elders and deacons here. I thank you for the members and the faith family in its entirety here. I thank you for all that you're doing among us and through us. I thank you for the privilege of launching off into a new ministry year. I thank you so much for Psalm 22 and the whole Bible. I thank you so much for the relationships that are forming. But Lord, I sense a certain thirst and hunger among many of us that there's more that you might do than you yet have done to give us this biblical vision of your church. Let the dew fall. Let the sun shine. Let the river flow. Let the oil of anointing come upon your high priest, Jesus Christ the righteous, and come down to the hem of his robe, as it were, which is us. If he's our great high priest, we will be priests with him. Bless this church, Lord, not just for the good of the landing, but for the good of Duluth and Superior and this entire region. Bless this church, not just for this region, but for the nations. That's your aim. That's where you'll take us in Psalm 22 next week. Bless, I pray, the the birthing of new churches out of this one. It's not because we are anything special. It's because we're nothing and you are everything that we ask you to do this great and glorious work in us and through us. So that Christ might be adored and exalted by our children and even children yet unborn. That Christ might be exalted and adored by our neighbors and the nations who do not yet know him. That Christ might be exalted and adored by those who stand as against us as our enemies at this moment. Wonder of wonders, you can turn dogs into brothers. You did that for me. Lord, we ask you now to make into reality the vision and picture you give. Purify it, refine it, make it useful in your hands, and we will watch you as you do it in Jesus' name.